It is a pleasure to be with you again, Transforming Love Church. I'm here, and I want to thank uh, Pastor Hawkins for allowing me to share the preaching place. And um, just so you know, I am pinch-hitting today. Uh, Pastor Doug Tegner was supposed to be here today, but he is a little bit under the weather. And so um, he has asked me if I would be uh, willing to share. And so I just uh, wanted to share that we are praying for him uh, for a speedy recovery and that his physical energies uh, will be resuscitated and restored. Now, we continue to travel through the book of Philippians. Uh, my understanding is that today we're in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we will look at uh, some uh, thoughts out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you brought your Bible, be it in hard copy as I did or in digital form, I invite you to turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> and in this um, biblical narrative, we want to look at uh, the example of Christ um, as it relates to how we are to conduct ourselves uh, in our Christian walk. Let me read uh, from... The biblical record, I'll be reading from the New American Standard. It is slightly different uh, if you're using the King James or the NIV or the English Standard or whatever translation. Uh, it reads as follows. If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affections and compassions... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those are verses 1 through 12 of Philippians chapter 2. And I just want to walk through this passage and uh, kind of pull out some thoughts so that you will be able to uh, brood over them and uh, meditate on them. 
the construction in this text it starts off with what we call a conjunction, a, a referent conjunction, referential conjunction. And the word there is therefore. And so when we see that word therefore, we want to pause and say, why is the writer? What is he pointing to? Um, he is connecting what is about to be said with what he has already said. And so if we were to back up to verse 27 of chapter 1 and refresh our memory and capture that thought, it leads into what Paul is going to be talking about in chapter 2. So in verse 27 he says, uh, after he has responded about uh, his assurance of how he's going to be able to linger on in the flesh and abide with the Philippians. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are steadfast or standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For it has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict you saw in me, and now here to be in me also. So in this pericope of Scripture, verses 27 through 29, correction, verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1, Paul starts the thought of being of one mind. We see it there in verse 27. He says, uh, whether I come or remain, I may hear of your standing firm in one spirit, united in one mind. And so now with that in mind, he says, um, we are to be a one mind striving together for one faith in the gospel. He's bringing this idea of unity of thought, unity of action, unity of disposition. And he says, in this unity of dispositions, we should not be alarmed by the opposition or by persecution, verse 28. And then he also comes down in verse uh, 29. It says, not only have you been redeemed, but if you're going to be like your Savior, you're going to have to suffer as he suffered. Uh, and that's, a, that's a, a topic and a phrase uh, and an idea that is often foreign from what we call Western Christianity. We come to Christ, we're redeemed, we're saved, uh, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're toe-tapping, handkerchief-waving people, we love the Lord, but we don't want to suffer for the kingdom of God. We want to go uh, almost like the old uh, song, I'm on my way to heaven anyhow. That's an old gospel song for those of you who know it in my age group and older. Uh, how sometimes we just feel that now I'm saved, all my problems are going to be over, uh, everything is, is going well. Uh, reminds me of the lyric from the old Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, Oklahoma, oh, what a beautiful morning, oh, what a beautiful day. I have a wonderful feeling. Everything's going my way. And we try to adapt that idea into Christianity, not, not realizing that not only have we been redeemed, from the enemy, not only have we been rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, but with that comes the, the requirement and sometimes the necessity of suffering, not, not that we're being nailed to a cross, I'm not saying that, but sometimes life is just hard. And just because I have come to faith in Christ, 
It does not mean that the hardness of life or the toughness of life or the struggles of life or the challenges of life or the burdens of life or the temptations of life are over. What it does mean is that I don't have to face them alone now because I am anchored in the Lord. I am filled with His Spirit. I am informed by His Word. I am baptized by His Spirit. I am surrounded by His grace, and that gives me the strength to face whatever comes my way. Okay? And so this idea of, 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 of suffering that is foreign to us, but is not foreign to Scripture. Because Paul had already said early in the first chapter of how he was sitting with the Praetorian Guard under arrest. And so we know that sitting in jail is not fun. No one knocks on the door of the jail and says, let me in. I want to spend time here today. You don't make a reservation for jail as you make a reservation for the Sheraton or the Hilton or the Hyatt. You know, most of us don't want to have anything to do with jail. Let me say this, even when our own relatives, our loved ones are in there. And so this idea, this idea of suffering is foreign to us. And so he goes on and he says now in verse 29, For it has been granted unto you not only to be redeemed, but to suffer. And he says, you are seeing that same suffering, verse 30, in me now. So he says, now, therefore, because of what I have just said, since there is, if there is any encouragement in Christ, uh, uh, any consolation of love, fellowship in the Spirit, affection, bonds, and mercies, he says, now, he says, therefore, okay, so he's already connected it, but in our English Bibles, we have the supposition if. And in our English language, the supposition if is, is, all, is often always in the context of a possibility, but in the Greek text, it is not a supposition of if, it is a first-class conditional statement that is better translated since we have consolation in Christ, since we have consolation in love, because we have this, therefore fulfill my joy. And so he's not moving, he's not operating from the point of possibility. He is talking from the point of truth. We have this. Why? Because we are in Christ. At the end of verse 1, in Christ is one of the most dominant phrases that Paul uses throughout his epistles to describe the relationship of the believer and the position of the believer. I'm not saved out on an island all by myself. I am saved in Christ, okay? And so he says, since we are in Christ, we have consolation of Christ. We have consolation of love. We have the partnership or the fellowship in the Spirit. We have affection, as the King James Version says, bowels of mercy for one another. Okay, he says, now, because we have this, he says, make my joy complete. Okay, how are you going to make my joy complete? Make my joy complete is the verb, and now he's going to understand, help us to understand how do we fulfill the conditions of the verb. He says, by being of the same mind, having the one mind. Pareo is the Greek term there that is used there, and it has this thought, it has this connotation, having unity in thought, and congruence in mind and in action and attitude, okay? And so he's saying there, 
have the same attitude, have the same disposition, have the same thought processes because the, the point that he's driving home is he wants them to be unified. Now, in the background of the text and in the historical context, there are some conflicts going on in the church at Philippi. I said to you a few weeks ago, even though it is a very friendly letter where Paul introduces himself as a fellow bondservant, uh, there's still some conflict that is going on. There is strife that is going on inside the church. And so one of the things that Paul writes and talks about is the, his desire for that there would be unity within the body of Christ. Now, conflict is nothing new to the human race. The challenge is, is with all of our different backgrounds, all of our different experiences, all of our different perspectives, all of our different analogies, it doesn't mean that they are necessarily good or bad. It just simply means that when we come to Christ, we need to be united under the umbrella of Christ. It's almost like this. If you ever spend the time sailing, uh, on the water, uh, most vessels have a flag under which they sail. If you've ever taken a cruise, I'm a big cruise guy. I love to go on cruises. And on every cruise ship that I have ever been on, the cruise ship has always flown the flag of the country under which they are registered. They may be registered in the United States, very few are, by the way. They may be registered in the Bahamas. They may be registered in one of the Caribbean nations. But when you board that ship, you are sailing on that ship under the registry of, under the authority of the flag and the country that it represents. Walk with me, I'm going somewhere. So now when we come to Christ, all right. Though we may be black or white, though we may be brown or green, though we may be Russian or German, though we may be rich or poor, though we may be educated or uneducated, when we unite with Christ, we now sail under his registry or under his flag, and we are to be united under his flag, even though we come from different backgrounds because we no longer march to our own own beat, but we march to the drum major or the beat of the Savior who redeemed us. And so Paul says, fulfill my joy. Why? Because of what we have in Christ. Okay? So he says, make my joy complete being of one mind. We're going to see that word again. Okay? We've already seen it. Uh, let me just throw this one out to you. We've already seen it in verse 27, where he says, with one mind striving together for the faith that is in the gospel. Suke is the other term that is used that talks about the faculties of the mind and having the right attitude and right disposition. Pareo is another noun that describes that. So he says, have the right mind. How are you going to have the right mind, or how will you know you, are, you have the right mind? He gives us four participles, and the four participles begin in verse 2. He says, first participle, maintaining the same love. All right? 
uh, second participle, united in one spirit and intent on one purpose. Verse number two. Uh, it goes on to the third participle regarding verse number uh, three, regarding one another more important than yourself. Third participle. And the fourth participle in verse number four, looking out for others and not just your own self. This is how you have one mind when you maintain the same love, when you are united in the same spirit and the same purpose, when you regard others as more important than yourselves, and when you look out not just for your own stuff, but for the stuff and the attitude and the needs of others. This is what was going to be a unifying principle in that church. And so if he is telling them to do that, then there must have been some neglect in doing that. And how do we come to that conclusion? Because he says in verse number three, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. Okay? And then in verse four, do not merely look out for yourselves. One of those verses is an imperative, which means to stop an action that was already going on. And so he says, in order, instead of looking out for your own things, maintain the same love one for another. Notice how in verses two through four, there's this, there's this idea of unity that is on display. So the idea of saying, just walking, if all of the members of Transforming Love Church were here today, sitting in this sanctuary, and if they all walk in the door, and I'm going to give, for the, just for the sake of hyperbole and exaggeration, all with the same attire on, all with the same hairstyle, all with the same shoes, all with the same Bible, all with the same mask, walking in cadence together, one may conclude that there is unity within the body. But if after you come in and sit down, there is discord and, and disagreement with one another, if after you come and sit down, you choose where you want to sit and you don't want to sit by somebody else, if after when you come in and sit down, you are rolling your eyes or looking down your nose, then that, 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 that counteracts the implied unity that is inferred by the externals and the attire. But if on the same level, if you come in now with different attire, yeah, if you come in from different places, if you come in from different backgrounds, and yet you come in and you are exhibiting the love of Christ, now you have lined up with what Paul is saying that is not just what's on the outside, but it's what's on the inside that flows to the outside. And so he says, so he says, so he says, verses one through four is an exhortion and appeal to humility and unity. All right, now let's move a little bit forward so we can close this thing out. So he sets the table now. So he says, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation in love, verse number one, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is bowels of confession and mercy, make my joy complete. 
Okay, so he says, have this mind, be of the same mind. But he doesn't leave it up to us. Now he's going to show us the ultimate example. Because in verse number five, he says to King James, if I remember the old English, King James says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. I grew up on the King James. That's why most of what I quote is from the King James. Now, I, 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 I usually teach from the New American Standard, but I want you to know my roots are in what I, one of my former pastors here and my dad used to say all the time, well, we know the King James is the real Bible, just like the Lord dictated. And I don't know if all that's true, but I know many people have an affinity for the King James. And so the King James says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The New American Standard says, have this attitude. It's the same, it's a different phrase, but it's based on the same root word, pareo which means think on these things. And it is not a wandering mind, but it is intentional thought, directed thought on these matters, almost like a student cramming for an examination, sitting down, opening the textbook, and trying to absorb all the material so that he or she can score well on the example. They are focused. They are intent. They, the, the distractions are gone. And so Paul is saying, have this kind of attitude, focus intently. And here is the example that I want you to focus intently on. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so he's saying that you want to know who the standard is? The standard is not ourselves. The standard is Jesus. Because the reality is we can all find somebody who we're doing better than, if you think about it. We can always measure up to somebody else and say, I know I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. I know I'm not as toe up as fill in the blank. I know I'm not as jacked up as fill in the blank. And, and you know, in, in, our, in our attempt to try to excuse ourselves, we fail to realize that although we are not as messed up and as jacked up and as toe up as fill in the blank, we are still jacked up, toe up, and messed up. And so he says, have this attitude in your mind for one who was not jacked up, toe up, and messed up. Have this attitude in your mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. Pareo, think on these things. And now he gives us an example. He says, first of all, in verse number uh, six, he says, who although he existed in the form of God, he is making an appeal and a refutation of some of the philosophy that was going on in the day that, that argued that Jesus was not fully God. And so the word that he used there is morphe, which has the connotation of consistent in essence and consistent in quality. And so he is saying here that although Jesus existed in the form of God, meaning that the pre-existing Christ was full deity. And so when he makes his argument, when he makes his argument, he says he existed in the form or in the morphe of God. He was fully God, but be, although he was fully God, 
carrying on with the verse, he did not regard his equality with God something to be robbed or grasped. There is a very, very faint reference to what happens in Genesis 3 in this text. The faint reference is this. In the phrase, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The faint reference points back to Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, we have the conversation of Satan with Eve. And Satan uh, says, has God said that fill in the blank? Eve responds and says, God has said this. Satan responds and says, well, God hadn't told you everything. He is trying to keep you from becoming like him. And the record says that after the conversation, when the woman saw the tree, it wasn't the first time she had seen that tree. She had been operating in the garden for a while and knew the area out of which to stay. But after the conversation, her, her vision is, she's adjusted her vision. And it says when she saw the tree, that it was a delight to the eyes, one, that it was good for food, two, and three, that it was a desire to make men wise, she partook and gave to her husband Adam, and he partook, and they fell into the trap because one of the traps of the lie of Satan was, when you eat, you will be equal with God. And so what Paul does here is he refutes in this to Adam, Jesus typology, he, he, he did not have to grab on to deity to be like God. Why? Because he was fully God. And that's the point that Paul is making here. He goes on and he says, but although he had equality with God, and although he um, did not regard uh, equality to be something to be grasped, he says, he voluntarily, verse 7, he voluntarily emptied himself, meaning that it was Jesus' choice to set aside uh, a portion, or not, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. It was Jesus' desire and his decision to set aside all of the privileges of deity to take on the limitations of humanity. That's what, that's what I want to say. Yeah, he set aside the privileges of deity. And then he said, now, I, in, in order to redeem man, I'm going to have to become in the form of a man. It doesn't mean that he did not pre-exist. It simply means that he accepted this role of the limitations of humanity to be able to identify with us. What if the writer of the Hebrews says, we have not a high priest uh, who cannot be touched with our friends, but in every way was tempted just as we are yet without sin. He took on our humanity, but he did not take on our sinfulness or our fallenness. And so he says he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, schema is the Greek word here that means he's fully God, but yet in appearance, he's fully man. Uh, what we call almost a dichotomy. He goes on and he says in verse 8, being found in appearance, again, schema, as a man, 
He voluntarily humbled himself. How did he humble himself? Well, one of the ways of his humility was simply being incarnated. Because while Jesus was on earth, there were limitations. He did abide within the physical limitations. And one example of that is in the narrative of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Because when Jesus is away, he tells his disciples Lazarus is sick. He deliberately delays And when he arrives, both sisters, Mary and Martha, said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Not realizing that Jesus willfully subjected himself to the limitations of our time-space continuum in order to fulfill his ministry. Okay? And he says now, he goes on, he says he humbled himself in the incarnation, But listen, in the incarnation, he did not sacrifice any of his deity, but he who added the humanity to his deity because he is fully God and fully man. Now he goes on and he says in verse number eight, he says he humbled himself even to death on a cross. The ultimate example of humble, of being humble or sacrificing. And he says, because he was obedient, again, we're talking about this idea of following Christ's example. Because he was obedient, verse 9, therefore, what is the therefore? The there is for to connect what he is about to say with what he has already said. What has he already said? He has already said Jesus existed in the form of God. Jesus did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus took on the form of a bondservant. Jesus made in the likeness of men. Jesus found in the appearance of man. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus died. Jesus died on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him because of his obedience. And in his exaltation, God has given him the name. Some translations use the term that God has given him a name. But the Greek text has the definite article there, and it says God has given him the name that is above every name. Okay, And so it doesn't matter how much you appreciate your name. Your name is not on the same level as the name of Jesus. It doesn't matter how much accolades people throw toward your name. It doesn't, your name is not on the same level as Jesus. I like the name Morgan, but Morgan is not on the same level as Jesus. And so he says here, God has given him the name. That is above every name because nobody bows at the name of Morgan. But guess what? Somebody's going to bow at the name of Jesus. And so he says here that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. 
At the name of Jesus, every tongue shall confess. Where shall they bow? In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. You can bow now in adoration, worship, and praise, and in redemption. Or you can bow later in judgment. But every knee is going to bow. And so he says, and at the name of Jesus, every knee. What's in a name? Authority. What's in his name? Holiness. What's in his name? Divinity. What's in his name? Redemption. What's in his name? Salvation. What's in his name? Resurrection. What's in his name? Healing. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. But not only that, Every tongue, every tongue, every tongue, it doesn't matter what dialect, every tongue, it doesn't matter what language, every tongue, it doesn't matter what tribe, every tongue, it doesn't matter what origin, every tongue, it doesn't matter from what country, every tongue will confess. That Jesus Christ is all that he claims to be. That's my translation. That Jesus Christ is Lord. The word Lord there is akin to the Old Testament reference of Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the self-existing one. And so every knee shall bow that Jesus is Lord, fully God, fully man, redeemer of mankind. But why are they going to do it? To the glory of the Father. Don't, don't, don't run past that. It's at the end of verse 11. To the glory of the Father. And so we worship today to the glory of the Father. We gather here Sunday after Sunday to the glory of the Father. We live righteous and holy lives to the glory of the Father. We have one mind united in one spirit to the glory of the Father. We preach the gospel to the glory of the Father. We love our enemy and our neighbor to the glory of the Father. We treat our wives and our husbands right to the glory of the Father. We raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord to the glory of the Father. We stand fast on the word of God to the glory of the Father. And one day we'll close our eyes in death to the glory of the Father. Our souls will be transported into the presence of the heavenly king. And we will bow and acknowledge the glory of the father. And so he says, let this mind be in you to the glory of the father. Have the same attitude to the glory of the father. Look out for the interests of others to the glory of the father. 
be united in love and in one purpose to the glory of the Father. And when we do that, the world will be able to say in the words of Jesus in John 17, God is glorified because they are one as we, he and Jesus, are one.